Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Who has been the best and indeed the worst Prime Minister Britain has ever had? We're going to try and answer that question in this week's episode. I'm joined by Times columnist Daniel Finkelstein, who's currently in the process of reading a biography of every Prime Minister ever. Andrew Jimson, the contributing editor of the Conservative Home website and author of a new book, Jimson's Prime Ministers, which chronicles uh, the biographies of every Prime Minister Britain's had. And Katie Perrier, former Director of Communications in Theresa May's Downing Street, who's seen what a Prime Minister does up close. Uh, before we begin, about a week ago we, we ran a poll after Andrew wrote for Red Box uh, asking Red Box readers what they thought of who had been the best and worst Prime Minister of the past 40 years. Gordon Brown came out the worst on 36%, followed by David Cameron on 19 and Theresa May on 18 And then on the best Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher came out top on 49%, Tony Blair on 31%, and poor old Theresa May just 2% on the best. But still time. Still time for her to tell you. She can build on that. She can build on that. So, Andrew, just um, talk us through. It's not a huge book. So how do you... No, it's not meant to be huge. It's Brief Lives. And so how have you managed to boil it down? How do you sort of approach something like that? Well, with trepidation, but also a feeling of liberty because you're not trying to say everything. And I found when I started working in political journalism that I knew very little political history... Uh, I'd sort of, I didn't even know much about Disraeli and Gladstone. And then if you want to find out about them, you find that there's a wonderful book by Robert Blake and it's 700 pages long. <laughs> and also you don't get the context. And it's quite difficult to work out how Disraeli and Gladstone, they, this fame, these famous duels they had, how all that works. Uh, and so I wished there was a short book where you could get the whole sweep. And then, of course, you, sh- you, you go and read about who, in much greater detail about whoever you're most interested in. And so you wrote for Red Box on your favourite Yes. 
characters that you'd, you'd picked yes. out. It, who was it? Remind me who it was who you concluded had been well, I, I, I went favourite? I went for Disraeli yes, in the right. end, but it's very difficult. I mean, Canning, I love. He was Prime Minister for only 119 days. An amazing man. Continually overplayed his hand and then died once he finally got there. A, a, one of the great foreign secretaries and certainly the greatest lighter of right, light verse ever to enter Downing Street, which is an amazing thing. I mean, he sent this thing in cipher to the ambassador who's in The Hague who stayed up all night translating it and discovered it was a bit of light verse. He called it some very, very important <laughs> message in this impenetrable code, almost impenetrable code, which was very difficult to work out. So he had a tremendous uh, sort of impudent sense of humour, but also a fantastic understanding that public opinion was becoming very, very... It was becoming decisive and there was going to be a great battle between property and numbers and something like the Reform Bill some very liberal measure would be needed. He didn't live to do it. And who did you conclude had been the worst? Well, I think Lord, Lord Bute is certainly the most hated. He was hated by the mob and by the upper classes, and not only because he was Scotch. He was a very, very bad... He was a, he was a creepy royal favourite um, and didn't understand politics. Uh, Lord Rosebery was a failure, couldn't sleep, but win, won the derby twice while in, in the sort of 14 or so months that he was... Prime Minister. Poor Lord Aberdeen, a brilliant and expert diplomatist, but never been in the House of Commons, couldn't make himself clear and allowed us to slide into the Crimean War because neither Turkey nor Russia understood what the British position was. Uh, and then, of course, the Crimean War was a most abominable series of catastrophes. So Aberdeen paid the price for that. So, Danny, let's bring you in because you're in the post. How many more books have you got left? There's about five. In your great. Yes, yeah, so five and a half because I'm halfway through grey. So who have you got left? Have you been keeping the big, the big ones? <coughs> no, well, I've, I've, oddly enough, considering that I'm working with him on his memoirs, got Cameron uh, to do because I feel like I, you know to complete the set I have to do, and I've got uh, Gordon Brown, uh, Jim Callahan, Alec Douglas Hume, Aberdeen, and Russell, and I'm halfway through Grey. But obviously by now I've covered the whole period because obviously all because all these people overlap mm. with each other. So yeah. If you read a biography of Palmerston, it'll overlap with Aberdeen's life, for example. Yeah. And have you come to any conclusions about who you like and who you don't? Well, one of the things that was, was my conclusion is that no Prime Minister gets it all right. So against every Prime Minister, you'll have something to say where they were, you know, brilliant. Uh, and they'll also, you'll also have something to say which will make them look terrible in the light of history. So say a figure, very attractive figure like uh, the, uh, the 14th Earl of Derby, uh, who had um, many times uh, been on the right side of political issues from the Great Reform Bill uh, th through to creating a more mainstream Conservative Party but was also totally wrong, for example, on the emancipation of Jews. You can, you can argue whether he was on the right or wrong side about, of the Corn Laws. He was certainly on the wrong side of coercion in Ireland. So uh, you have these attractive personalities who then um, get very, very big things wrong. You also get sort of real enigmas, like um, the, the Prime Minister who succeeded Canning, who'd only been, uh, who died after four months, and who himself lasted only about four months, which was uh, Frederick Robinson, the uh, Viscount Godrich. And he um, was right about almost every major political issue, the uh, emancipation of the slaves, uh, political reform, the corn laws, free trade, and it was a totally useless Prime Minister. Uh, who and that was partly caused by the fact that he couldn't, as Andrew will say, couldn't keep his uh, coalition together because the coalition had been formed for Canning, and he didn't have Canning's personality. But he used to, he was known as the blubberer because he used to cry when making speeches in the House of Commons, even when the issue was something like uh, the, the trading rights over, over widgets. Yeah, he burst into tears. When, when he was stepping down, actually, and the king had to lend him his handkerchief and called him a great big blubbering blockhead. Um, <laughs> but those who can't stand the pressure, which in a funny way included Anthony Eden as well, people who are just 
somehow too thin-skinned. Um, and it's a very paradoxical thing because you need to be very sensitive to public opinion, but also incredibly tough. One, just one little extra thing. One of the things that has occurred to me is that Spencer Percival, who's remembered almost oh, entirely yes. or, or or only yes. really because he was assassinated uh, in office and is the only person to have been assassinated in office. If he hadn't been, it occurs to me he would have probably been lo- uh, Britain's longest-serving prime minister and maybe quite a good one as well. So just um, before I bring Katie in, is there because she can tell us how? Because I'm slightly conscious that we've only really talked about people who have been published oh, quite a long ones. time ago. Yes, yes, are really, yes. really, really dead. Yes. Are there any strands... They're alive to us, Matt. Of course. And they live They live in your book. <laughs> yeah. uh, they yeah. leap for the page. But how, are there any sort of strands of what it is or isn't that makes a good or bad Prime Minister? Yes. I think the ability to stand up in the House of Commons and, and say intelligible things, not necessarily very Because that's sort of thing. timeless, isn't it? People and say, that, oh, you know, you, times yeah, change. No, that is, that. And that Walpole was very good. He made people feel they understood the finances, even when, as Lord Chesterfield said, they almost certainly didn't. But he made it all so clear, and, and that is absolutely vital. And that's why I think we've had a very, very low incidence of either of complete idiots or of criminals, because when you stand up in the House of Commons, you reveal whether you have a clear and reputable outlook on things or not. And to keep a coalition together, that's absolutely yep. vital. Yes. So someone yes. like Shelburne, who was yep. brilliant intellectually, uh, but he didn't last very long yep. because yep. he was thin-skinned and people didn't like him. So, Katie, looking back on all that history, how do our current crop of politics... Because although you, you work for Theresa May, you, you've, you've worked in politics for a long time, you saw you know, David Cameron up close as well. How, how do our current crop of politicians compare? Honestly, it's, it's too early to say in many regards yeah. because in history we can only prove in a 50 years' time or 100 years' time, for example, that the referendum was a great idea because yeah. you know our economy you know, outstripped the rest of Europe. We only know that in 50 years' time. So we can't really compare the two right now. What I think we can compare is the qualities that are needed in a good Prime Minister, yeah. as you say. Yes. And one of them is decision-making, an ability to make decisions yes. and, and follow through with those decisions. Um, and so some uh, recent Prime Ministers may have made the wrong decisions, and we could say Blair in Iraq, but the ability to make a decision and lead your government through that decision... Yeah, it's not only ability to make decisions, but to carry your Cabinet with you. And, Indeed. in fact, the greatest leaders... I mean, I, I, I thought that this business of cabinet government was just a nice constitutional theory, but it is actually the best way, I'm now convinced it's the best way to run things, because one individual, however gifted, cannot understand the money, the defence, the foreign policy, every aspect. You, you have to have meetings where people can actually say, well, I, what I think we should... I mean, great leaders like George Washington in America did this, and actually Churchill. Of course, there's a great focus on him as an individual, but he ran a great coalition, and he had all these Labour people and gifted people who hadn't been involved in politics... That is one of the mar- one of the things about a great leader. I think is bringing in lots of gifted people, actually, also from very different sort of origins and very different outlooks. And it's the ability, also, I think, and, and those qualities need to change in time. So you would not have needed to be a great TV performer back in the yeah. day, but now it's pretty much a prerequisite in terms of what's valued as a good prime minister. Although interestingly, what Andrew was saying about being good in the House of Commons actually is is a good test. Yeah, of people rising up. Uh, one one theory that uh, the, that reading all this work has uh, um, sort of uh, pierced uh, is that pe- we've got terrible politicians now, and it's not the golden age anymore. I think the, almost exactly the opposite is the case. It seems to me as though as time has gone on, the country's got richer, healthier, uh, wiser, uh, better, uh, and so have the politicians. That doesn't mean to say that there's not a lot of uh, ra- variation around the mean, uh, but uh, the um, <laughs> but the uh, the education levels, the experience of outside life, uh, the ability to communicate uh, to the public. Um, you know, some people never visited their constituencies and wouldn't know how to talk to anyone outside a small world, the understanding of the world, 
These are not because the people necessarily are better, but because uh, we require more of the person holding that office. And so I think actually there's quite a good case that some of the great prime ministers, um, Attlee, Thatcher, uh, possibly Macmillan, you might include Mm. in that uh, category, um, uh, Churchill, have actually really been quite recent. The intellectual calibre of prime ministers in the 19th century, I would have thought, was on average higher than in the 20th. But it's not the only test. Yeah. What I'm really interested in too is what role does luck have to play uh, in the success of your, your, you know, your tenure yeah. as prime minister in terms of what you inherited from the previous incumbent, yeah. and you know whether or not you inherited a good economy, whether or not you know you you, uh, you had a disruptive cabinet that you argued all the time. I mean, what success? How yeah. successive could Blair and Brown could have been if they didn't have that disruptive relationship uh, at the heart of their government, and, for example? Yes. But also inherited a booming economy. The, Indeed. You know, the, so the sun in, didn't yes. just start shining in May '97. So, what, yes. what, what role does luck have to play in terms of what the hand you're dealt? Well, I think it? luck is absolutely. The cards do have to fall well for you at, at some point, but of course, the longer you stay in the game, I mean, Disraeli is a, is a classic example. He he had so many disadvantages. He'd been born into the Jewish faith only baptised into the Church of England when he was 12 because his father fell out with the synagogue. Uh, he then, at a very early age, contracted enormous debts which stayed with him throughout his life. He wrote disreputable novels, including novels which mocked the people. He actually he, he, he set up a newspaper called The Representative which was going to rival The Times. And it was a total flop. And, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And then he wrote a novel at the age of only 22 in which he mocked the people who'd lost a lot of money in this venture. And also he puffed South American mining shares, which were essentially fraudulent. And he looked ridiculous. He dressed in an absurd, like an absurd dandified figure. It took five attempts to get into Parliament, and then his maiden speech was a flop. You would not have expected that he was going to win through and become one of the great prime ministers and the only prime minister to whom a reigning sovereign has erected a memorial after his death, Queen Victoria, who, of course, loved Disraeli and couldn't stand Gladstone. So you don't have to deal with as a modern prime minister, though you do have to deal with the people uh, that you did uh, all the time in the past was the monarch. Uh, And of course, you know, the only reason we think of Walpole as being the first prime minister is because when George the first died in in 1727, uh, everyone thought that Walpole would fall and he Mm. managed because of his majority in the Commons, really, although also because the Queen wanted him uh, to to survive when George II became prime minister. So you... um, Handling the monarch was absolutely critical to why, you know, for example, Pitt yep. uh, goes out and in and out of office. Yes. Both Pitt the elder and Pitt the younger. Why Fox never became prime yep. minister? The, these, um, this is obviously, you know, a big factor in history of prime ministers. Now you have to deal with a different audience, which is public opinion, which you didn't have to, you couldn't ignore entirely. That's one no. interesting, but you, but it was a different public, and they jolly well tried to ignore it. They, they tried to try keep to reporters out of the House of Commons throughout the 18th century. And Dr. Johnson famously had to make, make the stuff up. He'd just been told that Perriwell spoke on one side and Chorley spoke on the other side and, and would then make the speeches it up. It makes history writing quite difficult because yes. they're always guessing what someone said in the House yes. from reports that are not necessarily direct. It's very, we've lost the speeches of Pitt the Elder by reputation, the greatest Commons orator ever. Volcanic, he could really bury you, and, and he, he, he spoke spontaneously as well, so he's absolutely devastating. He could respond immediately to what you said, but we only have fragments of these. We have the impression they made on people, we don't have the actual speech. Well, I remember reading from when I was chairman of the press gallery last year and read up some of the history on it, and there were the reports at the time there were concerns about allowing reporters in yes. because it might lead to showboating and yeah, people giving absolutely. overly exciting speeches. Which, having sat yes. in the press gallery more recently, ha, I, don't, ha, ha, ha. I don't think that was <laughs> no, a, no. A, a concern we needed to avoid about too much. Yeah. It's sort of weird in a way that the yes. fact they are now te- televised and reported on constantly. Yes. Actually, the 
quality of speeches in the Commons is not particularly no. high no. these days. Katie, do you think that the modern politicians, to try and judge them against somebody in the 19th century is just sort of unfair? Yeah, very much so. And I think that people have very short memories as well. So your red box poll, which came forward saying that, you know, I think it was uh, Theresa May and David Cameron didn't come out too well. So on the, on the best Prime Minister, Cameron got 5%, May got 2%. Because of the way we do the polls, we're going to have 7 So I went back 40 years. It also had the advantage... Spencer Compton, Earl of Wilmington, Matt. Ha, ha, yeah, ha, ha, complete <laughs> outlier. <laughs> complete <laughs> outlier. Yeah. So yeah. I, think that, I think that people um, have uh, short memories about what is achieved in office and also a lack of respect about what it entails and what a difficult job it is. Yeah. We are very dismissive and have apathy towards our politicians generally in these days. I'd like to know from, from Andrew and Danny in terms of respect for politicians throughout the years and whether or not that's kind of plummeted or is it... Oh, Always been at that level. Well, it's interesting when when uh, Percival uh, was shot. Oh, yeah. Um, his wife Jane was in Great George Street, which any people who know Westminster will know is just around the corner from the house. And uh, she was told that he'd been killed, uh, and she heard then the crowds cheering in yes. in um, in Parliament Square. And they then tried to overturn the carriage in which Bellingham was being taken from uh, being charged, which he was immediately, yes. to jail, um, because there was such an anti-monarch um, and anti-politician yep. um, po- feel. And so there are quite often stories. Yes. Uh, Goderich had an incident after he introduced a protectionist legislation in which his servant shot uh, a, yep. a demonstrator who was trying to invade their house. Uh, Pitt was uh, ass- assailed on the way to his club. So yep. violent altercation with members yes. of the public was <laughs> is very is quite a frequent theme. Yes, Pel- Pelham defended Walpole with his sword and said, "Who will be the first? Who, um, so yeah, no, the, it's quite. So it's improved. Surpri- yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, 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 well, well, hang on, hang on. We had, the, time. <laughs> we had the Brighton, we had the Brighton bomb quite recently. Thatcher could easily have perished in that. And of course, because it happened in the Houses of Parliament. Just right. Yes. You can still see yes. it if you go into the House of Commons through the St Stephen's uh, entrance. Uh, well, you can't go through St Stephen's entrance, but through the St Stephen's court, uh, courtyard or sort of corridor, as it were. Uh, that was where the old house was. Mm. Uh, on the left-hand side, as you go up, you'll see a plaque in the place just outside the lobby of what was then the House of Commons before the fire in 1834, um, where Percival was, was assassinated. And he was shot by an ancestor of Henry Bellingham, yes. who was... N- the Norfolk MP yeah. at the moment. Yes. Yeah, and uh, yeah. former minister. Another reason why it's hard, I think, to judge those currently uh, that we know about in terms of history is because I think over time biographers have different slants on different people and so they've influenced our view uh, of them as, yeah. as we go on in time. And so we may well find that in you know, 100 years' time uh, from, from, from the position we are in now, we could have a wonderful biographies of some politicians that at the moment are pretty much, you know, uh, hated. That's uh, true. And often we can only remember one thing, with Eden obviously is serious. Blair, it's Iraq. Blair was had a very, very protracted honeymoon, and perhaps that will come through in, in some of the history writing. I think the problem at the moment is that he's so self-righteous. <laughs> I think Blair will look better in historical yes, terms, yes. Uh, yes. both in terms of achievement, yes. uh, the stability when he was prime minister, his ability to keep yep. his, his the sheer size of his election majorities. Um, just on this question of books, I, I'll plug Andrew's book rather than letting him do it himself. Ah. Uh, it's really valuable because uh, when I got to the second prime minister after reading Walpole, Spencer Compton, Earl of Wilmsbury, there isn't a biography of him at all. <laughs> uh, you have to use the Dictionary of National Biography. And, yep. th- th- and actually, in fact, a man called Carteret was actually 
actually in fact running yep. the government. Yep. That's why yep. nobody's bothered to do a, a biography <laughs> yeah. of Wilmington. Yeah. Yeah. But there are others. The fourth Duke of Devonshire, who was prime yep. minister for a year. There's yep. no biography of him. Yep. And then sometimes there's where there's otherwise was famine. Uh, there's feasts. So with yep. Derby, you have to read two 800-page books uh, for somebody who was prime minister totally in total for about four years, three, four years. Like uh, but over three yes. uh, spread yes. over. He never had a long no. moment. So um, this is a very valuable. Very valuable effort because it means that all in one place you can read something about everybody. Um, in a sec, we'll talk about. I particularly want to talk about Winston Churchill and whether or not uh, his position as as all conquering best PM ever um, should be challenged. Uh, we'll be back after this. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Red Box podcast with me, Matt Chollum, joined by Daniel Finkstein, Katie Perrier and Andrew Jimson. We're talking about um, the best and worst prime ministers ever. Let's just start then with Churchill. Yeah. On all polls, he comes out as sort of the best... Prime Minister ever. Macmillan told him in 1954, uh, I made a note of this in his diary, and Macmillan got on very well with Churchill. He said it took Hitler to make you um, Prime Minister and me an undersecretary. The, the, the Tory party would do neither. The, the Tory party mistrusted <laughs> Churchill, who had, of course, ratted from the Tory party uh, and, and then rejoined, but wasn't really in sympathy with, with, um, with these businessmen who ran the party between the, between the wars. And, and of course, have been a tremendous critic on and got things wrong on the abdication and on India, and as far as public opinion was concerned, he got it wrong on appeasement as well. Uh, and he drank a lot, and he was a sort of strange maverick figure. In fact, it struck me watching Darkest Hour, which is obviously won oh, yes. lots of awards the past month or so. They actually there was more of the sort of downside of Churchill in the criticism of him than you yes. quite often get in portrayals of him. Yes. Showing that he wasn't universally popular in the mistakes yeah. he made in the past and that yes. sort of thing. You're shaking your head though. Well, well, I thought that film was terrible. <laughs> I know everyone thought it was great. I thought I would thought that because was one of the five worst films I've ever seen. Actually, Golly. I thought well, it was just That's packed with cliches. Anyway, yeah. I do think the downside of Churchill is very interesting, and what it demonstrates is the role that probability plays in prime ministers. So Churchill basically made a decision that, despite the fact that the chances of us defeating Germany in in May 1940 were very small, the costs of surrendering to them were very large and when you multiply the two together it was worthwhile carrying on with the war and this turned out to be correct uh, probabilistic I think this is a completely nonsensical account but, <laughs> but, um, but, no, no, Churchill, Churchill ah, revelled in conflict he, right. he'd been but, in five wars well, okay, by the but, age of 22 but yes um, but as I say if you take yes. a, but exactly uh, if you take a wider view of Churchill's career uh, you can see that he constantly took uh, extremely long shot bets on positions ah, yes. that then uh, didn't work out for him yes, uh, but yes, then he was lucky yes. because because the one so that did come off was where the big one. Was the big one. Now, then, if you look at, say, for example, Blair, uh, 
many of the decisions we've taken, which is uh, the iterations of the rule, we are going to face up to dictators, uh, turned out to be successful. And he indeed Mm. won his reputation partly because he took that view on Sierra Leone and Kosovo and was successful in it. But then, of course, with Iraq, it was not successful. Cameron is the same. We'd remember him entirely differently if if having made a big bet on Scotland, which came off, and Mm. a big bet on the AV referendum, which came off, his bet on the European referendum did not come off. So a lot of the time we're remembering people as a result of probabilistic calculations they made that, that they got on the wrong end of. And that's that's um, not necessarily a, a reflection on their personal characteristics. Situation and luck plays a lot. I said about Godrich earlier. Yeah. You know, was it because Godrich was a blubberer? Possibly. <laughs> or was it because, uh, by that point, the coalition between Liberal Conservatives uh, and Whigs had, had become Baroque and yep. he couldn't sustain it? Yeah. Contrasting that with, with politicians who maybe don't make big calls, don't gamble big, mm. there's a... I mean, I'm looking at you, Katie, partly because there's sometimes a criticism of Theresa May. She takes a very long time over things and doesn't have that sort of instinct. But then, of course, she did gamble big with the election and that didn't pan out quite how she planned. And presumably the whole time a Prime Minister was sitting in number 10 having to make decisions which don't often seem that big at the time but could end up having big repercussions later or you you know and then along comes something like her poisoning in Salisbury and your entire government is consumed by it so although a decision to go to war is big quite a lot of the time you're making decisions you don't realise quite which way they're going to go. And you're obviously making decisions that are going only going to know in a few years' time how well they pan out. That, yeah. I, I remember things like Hinkley, Hinkley Point, where Theresa May kind of froze the decision-making process and wanted to just consider it a little bit further. Um, uh, but then on other issues like Heathrow, David Cameron pushed that into the long grass and Theresa May was absolutely adamant that in as part of a post-Brexit Britain we would have uh, airport expansion in the UK. So I think that we forget about some of the decisions that are made and we just focus on the ones that aren't made in, in the long term. Um, I'm very interested to, to kind of... Uh, know about the individual personalities of prime ministers and whether or not that plays into the successful um, you know, knowledge that we, we think that they've been a, a good prime minister in the long run. Churchill, for, known as being, you know, re- had a really good war, but he was quite pedantic and he rubbed people up the wrong way. And I see him as someone that was quite selfish at times, especially in the way that he held on too long and didn't have that kind of secession plan. And he was quite ill by the end, and then Eden kind of was quite ill. And, well, he had a succession know, plan, but he didn't keep to it. He didn't I keep to it. I think he had told Eden that... I mean, of course, during think Eden was named as his successor in 1942 because obviously if Churchill's plane crashed or something, then a successor would be needed. But I th- think he did tell Eden that he would give up at the end of the war and not make the mistake that Lloyd George had made of carrying on after the war. Well, of course... Churchill had decided he had no intention of giving I, up. I think personalities um, play a big role. For example, David yes. Cameron managed to keep people in his po- in their posts for three or four years, yes. a very stable government yes. through a very difficult time. Um, and uh, Blair went through kind of several home, you know, home secretaries. Very, you know, there was one every couple of months at one point, I think. Um, and so we, you know, I think that your personality, whether you're suited to the job, and you don't know that until you're in it, but yeah, other yeah. people from afar could say, well, you know, Theresa May was never suited to be Prime Minister. Well, I think it's, it's quite actually true. about That's being in the job. Right. And I think a lot of people, particularly the press, tended to underestimate and misunderstand Cameron, and were completely astonished when he won the election in 2015. And we're also pretty astonished that the coalition had held together for five years from 2010. Those were really big professional achievements, but they didn't see his professionalism and how he'd actually learned how to do politics in the Conservative Research Fund because they were so... I mean, there's a, there's a kind of journalist like myself who's been to a not very glamorous fee-paying school and has had a not very glamorous life at university and has certainly never been elected to something 
as, as, as grand as the Bullingdon Club, who is absolutely obsessed by class. And so the press, lots of people in the press were obsessed by Cameron's class. Didn't actually realise he was a professional politician. Uh, he wasn't just some sort of languid chap who wandered in from an Evelyn War novel or something. <laughs> but also, um, because, because there was a big part of the Tory party which disagreed with what he was doing... They couldn't see. They were blinded yes. to the fact yes. that what he was doing it quite well. Yes, and he was being very Anglican and saying, "Let's have a middle course," which, in the end, of course, you can't on Europe. But and it worked for a bit. Danny, you mentioned at the beginning you're, you're working with David Cameron on his memoirs. How much? I mean, this probably applies to all prime ministers because most prime ministers end up writing the memoirs at some point, sort of put their side of the story. What's that process like to try and? Well, you've got to you um, rewrite history, maybe. I suppose that the job is to do two things which is to record the events that happened in your life which only you can know because you know some of the inside things that happened the discussions you have with people and it's but it's also to put the to understand what the case is um so in in, in david cameron's book of course he's going to have to um explain and um defend the decisions he took on europe but he you know the books all and he also got to uh, advance the case for the liberal conservatism that he supported but he also has to tell his story so that all those things but naturally quite a lot of prime ministers didn't uh, write um memoirs i mean it's a relatively modern uh, <laughs> phenomenon isn't it i, I don't i mean I, I, andrew will know this yes. better than me but mo- mo- quite a lot of them died apart from anything else i mean one of the things that we don't have now is is this constant recurrence of the ill health you know the duke of portland uh virtually dying in office liverpool yes. virtually dying in office pelham you know uh, pitt actually dying in office canning actually dying in office i mean this yes. happened quite a lot but they stayed in office for so much longer then i mean now well, we could you, know, you can walk well, away from was, and, and well, they they also they were Older they when were they older. get there. Yeah. Now we've got this older, problem of exactly. some of them former prime hanging about and giving well, speeches all the time. Yeah, that's actually. I don't think. I mean, I haven't done a statistical analysis. So I don't think that'll turn out to be true. Okay. First of all, first of all, I think you know, there were quite a lot of prime ministers, annoyingly, from the point of view of my project and probably from the point of view of your book, Andrew, who last four months or a year, hmm. and hmm. therefore you have to spend just as long on those people uh, read one out of them as, <laughs> ah, <laughs> um, they're, they're, you know because uh, certainly not, not for you maybe no, Andrew but no. for the way that I'm doing it yeah. um, when is Cameron's book out by the way I don't know actually whether he, when he's well, going just, to when he's going tell him to, to get a move on to go on David Cameron the, the, the question because he will be remembered because of the EU referendum and there were the people who maybe might have agreed with him on lots of things that he did to the Tory party but now hate him because they back remain and they think that he's in the country but he's also not doesn't seem to be getting any credit from leavers either for helping bring about the thing well, they wanted so early isn't it we don't know how brexit is going to turn out but he kept the tory party together which is uh, really absolutely but fundamental in a way, all tory leaders since robert peel <laughs> failed to do that have known that that is really their duty and they must they must adapt well, other things in order to but in a way it, it doesn't matter how brexit turns out because if brexit's well, a disaster does. he'll be blamed for it yeah. And if it's a good idea, well, he he didn't, I'm, he didn't I'm want it robust, to I'm robust on this. I robustly supported the idea of holding a referendum because it was right to ask people. And one of the reasons we know it was right to have a referendum is because when people voted in it, they overturned what the political elite thought, yeah. uh, including me, by the way. Um, and that sh- suggested that, in fact, when you asked broad opinion on this incredibly important topic you got a different answer and I also think that uh, his I personally found his liberal conservatism very attractive I think the conservative party yeah. if it wants to be the big political force in the future is going to have to understand the lessons of the enlightenment that Stephen Pinker puts in his recent book um, and David Cameron did see that was leading the conservative party in the right direction held a referendum I thought was sensible hold and then had to resign when he lost it 
when somebody asks me, will he be well judged by history? Well, unfortunately, he's going to be judged by historians, almost all of whom will regard Remain as the right answer. So. <laughs> 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 you reflect about uh, you know, positions of probability. The fact is that David Cameron made that judgment because he may not have won the 2015 election without it. And therefore, uh, there's this role whereby what are the decisions the Prime Ministers have made over the, in the course of history that were only because of the alternative or because they've pretty much felt that they were forced to do that. Uh, otherwise would have been out of office anyway. So, um, and I think that the, 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 in the future we will look back on David Cameron as indeed holding not only a co- mm. good coalition together but the Conservative Party together. Yeah. And maybe we will also look back on Theresa May in that way too. So if you, if you were hypothetically still in number 10, Katie, advising Theresa May, how does she get better judged in the Red Box podcast in 100 years' time when people <laughs> are looking back on the best Prime Minister? That what does she need to do to not just be remembered for calling a absolutely disastrous election. That would be assuming that she really cares about you and your red box, Matt, for a start. Oh, well, well, <laughs> well, be, be, she, she appeared to be a fan uh, <laughs> when she uh, made jokes about it the other night. No, I think I think it's about the fact that uh, you don't want to be just known for your election campaign. You uh, want to be known for the fact that you held the country and the party together through one of the most difficult times in its history. Uh, she's in a unique position. Nobody else has had to you know, exit the European Union in the way that we are going about to do uh, within the next 12 months. And uh, we'll give her credit for that but also making some real developments on the domestic front because I don't think you can um, ignore that uh, and be obsessed by Brexit. She says she's going to be the saviour of the housing crisis and I think that's fundamentally important if you want Conservative people to vote Conservative for you in the future. And uh, just along the panel, do you think she'll fight another election? No. No. And very quickly, because I'm conscious we're running out of time, is there anything from looking back over history that gives us any guide to the sort of people who will make become Prime Ministers in the future? Are there any people on the way up who you think fit the bill based on what you've what we've been talking about? I think people are rather fed up with the um, careerist politician who, who, who rises because they sort of suck up to the hierarchy. And actually that's one reason why Corbyn is, is, is in some ways popular, because palpably he did not spend his last 40 years sucking up to the hierarchy, but he's speaking his mind. And I, so I think people are quite keen on People, for example, who, people like Rory Stewart or Tom Tugendhat, who um, have sort of pro-consular or military experience, or Dan Jarvis on the Labour side. I think people will, people are much more inclined to, or, or Johnny Mercer, people are much more inclined to vote for people like that than for someone who they think is a sort of dreary percentage player. I mean, Jeremy, one of the things that this study uh, of Prime Ministers has suggested is just how out of the run Jeremy Corbyn is and how extraordinary (laughs) that is. And we ought to to sort of enjoy, uh, as political observers, such a moment. Um, He's, you know, the the post-war consensus that Attlee forged... um, behind uh, a sort of popular front of democratic countries rather than a popular front of socialists, which is what was being urged on him by Crips and others. Yeah. Um, yeah. That has stuck with the Labour Party and has obviously been the Tory party's uh, position broadly as well. Uh, and Jeremy Corbyn breaks with that position. So what we're seeing, for example, now about Russia, uh, that is yeah. a position all you know, almost nobody in the whole run yes. of prime ministers would have taken, um, yeah. with the possible exception, I wonder, of Walpole. Walpole wanted peace. Certainly, you want to keep out of this sort of stuff. And he, he, he boasted that, you know, 40,000 people had been killed that year in Europe and not one Englishman. Mind oh. you, you know, they always used to say of Walpole that he was a crook and he used to deny it. If you ever go and visit, which a I do with his house uh, in Norfolk, it is Gorgeous. The, absolutely the end of that argument. Lord he Chumley. definitely was a crook. Lord <laughs> no, not a crook. Brilliant. No, no. It was extraordinary. How no. could he earn that money? That wasn't, wasn't, it was not crooked. And he ended so up in with, that way, Corbyn is He had very heavy debts. Um, 
thanks to his life of public service. <laughs> all these bloody writers and people were there against him, that's true. Uh, and Katie, who have you got your eye on as the, the potential next? I mean, obviously, we've talked before about your many years working with Boris Johnson. Oh, yeah. Does he still fit the bill? I mean, you couldn't you couldn't pick anybody right now. I think it's going to be like a twenty horse race uh, when it comes down to it. Uh, but I think Andrew's right in terms of the fact that people now want uh, that authentic approach to uh, a life before politics. They can they can touch the real world and understand what people are going through. So that applies to not just the armed forces, which I mm, think are yeah. all represented in the House of Commons. It applies to those that maybe worked in the healthcare profession before, um, you know, nurses, doctors. Um, we have several of those in both sides of the house, and I think yeah. that they're very well respected as well. And as we go through very difficult times in terms of tackling our problem with adult social care we may be calling upon people like that to come up with some of the solutions well it's fascinating stuff do get in touch and let us know what you think um email redbox at the times.co.uk or tweet us at times redbox tell us you've been listening to the podcast and who you think has been the best and worst prime ministers that we've had uh, for now that's all we've got time for subscribe to the podcast on itunes on your android device and sign up to my morning email briefing at the times.co.uk forward slash redbox but for now from katie perrier andrew jimson daniel finkelstein and me matt jolly it's goodbye Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.